Oh, good morning, guys. Can can we can we start with some real talk? Sometimes when I'm I'm putting a message together, it is it just is easy and it's a delight and it's fun and it just starts to to flow really really easy. And there are other times when I just feel like I'm like I'm slogging it out. I, I think I think the storm today was a really good metaphor for how um, my my message prep came together this week. This is what I showed up to church looking like this morning. Um, came over last night and cleaned out the drains and came in early this morning and cleaned out the drains and 25 minutes later I went out and cleaned out the drains and 30 minutes after that I was told that a branch came down on the lights that are hanging over the parking lot so I went and fought that and got that and then I went and cleaned out the drains and I was like oh for the love can't we just kind of be one and done and and, and working through the message was, was kind of the same this week. And to the point where when it was done, I sometimes when I'm wrestling through something, I'm like, well, I'm just going to go practice it. I, I know what it looks like on the page. I'm going to see what it sounds like coming out of my mouth. And so I, I went and hid in a back room, and I'm, I'm practicing, and I'm going through, and I get about two-thirds of the way done, and I stop all of a sudden and just go, what a load of crap. Um, which is odd on two reasons. One, I don't know why I got Scottish, or at least that's Scottish. Um, and that's not really what you want to say when you're kind of walking through what you feel in your heart. But I was just like, I walked into Wendy's office, and I'm like, man, I don't know what's going to happen this week because this is, this is awful. And she's like, well, you said that last week. I said, I know, but this week it's awful, awful. And um, I just put it aside, and then I'm, I'm driving around, and I'm thinking, Like, why is this so hard? And I'm thinking through the passages of Scripture that we're going to be visiting together, and they're powerful, and they're life-giving. And I was like, you know what? This isn't a horrible message. This is a great message because this is the Word of God, and it's something He wants to communicate to His people. I think what I'm doing is I am having to contend with our enemy, our adversary, who does not want some people to hear what God teaches in His Word because I believe now this morning that there are some specific places of breakthrough that the Holy Spirit wants to bring us to. And it may be one thing for one person and something else for someone else. That's why uh, you note takers will see this morning, it just says, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? So what we're going to do is we're going to pray. And I'm going to do my best to communicate what I feel like God has placed in my heart. Because I believe God has something specific for you. There is something that he wants to free some of us from. There are some things that he wants to release others of us in. And those kinds of things don't go uncontested. There is no part of Jesus' ministry that did not go uncontested in the gospel. And so there is no part of Jesus' ministry to you and through you that will not be contested in the present. But as we sang this morning, our God is bigger, our God is greater, our God sets the course for our future. So I'm going to pray for me, probably even more than I'm praying for you, um, just because I know how I've been fighting, and I just want to be able to communicate what Jesus is communicating today. So can we, can we pray? Is that all right? Um, here's what I'd like you to do. We're, we're, a, we're a church family. If you're comfortable, just stretch your hand out toward me, uh, if you would, and just, I'm, thank you. God, I, I'm here to do my best, Jesus. I really want to communicate what it is that you've put in my heart to communicate because your words are life. You asked Peter if he was going to go anywhere, and he said, God, where should I go? You have the words of eternal life. And I, I feel, Lord, that this message is being resisted 
God, and probably in the hearts of those who are gathered with us and online as well. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to bring clarity where there is confusion, to bring strength where there is weakness, to bring power to bear. Lord God, it is your kingdom that is coming. We are your children. We are called by your name. And so we, we align ourselves with your work and with your will and say, Lord, what you, would you do in these next few moments, whatever it is that you want to do, not what I came prepared for, not what anyone in this room has come prepared for, but Lord, what you saw for this time, would you do what it is in your heart to do for your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, thanks for being my friend. Okay. So we are still uh, in this series. We're almost done. We're three-quarters of the way through the four-chapter gospel. Um, if you're new to us, we're, ex- we're exploring the four stages or chapters of God's story. Uh, we began with chapter one, the creation story, the way things ought to be, how God designed things, uh, how he created us to be his image bearers, and how he gave us stewardship or oversight of his good creation. Last week, we got to chapter two, the fall the part of the story that talks about the way it is right now, our rebellion against and our replacement of God. We began to uh, worship ourselves and decide what was the best for us in our forefathers, Adam and Eve. When we decided to take the fruit, we were going to decide what was good and what was bad. And then we talked for a moment about repentance, coming back into alignment with God by putting the fruit back on the tree. That's the imagery we used. In essence, saying to God, I am going to live as a member of your kingdom, not trying any longer to build my own. And I told you that this week we get to one of my favorite topics. We get to talk about chapter 3. We get to talk about the story of redemption. Now what we've seen so far in our time together is that the Imago Dei, the image of God, has been corrupted. It's been polluted. It's been infected by sin. It's in us, but it's a shadow of its former self. We are not able to be what we ought to be, what God created us to be, to do what he created us to do. But from time to time, If we look closely, we get a glimpse of it. We get a glimpse of the image of God. I want to show you what I mean. I'm going to show you a video in just a second because sometimes, for me, a visual helps me as I'm trying to get my head around an idea. You're going to meet in just a moment a 23-year-old woman named Emma Jones. Emma Jones appeared on America, excuse me, Britain's Got Talent in 2015. And when you first meet her, you are completely unaware of the gift that is resident within her. It's, it's one of the reasons I love moments like this. I don't watch America's Got Talent, but I'll go on YouTube sometimes and, and look for the ones that amaze the judges because you find someone who does not look like much to our natural eyes, and then they begin to step into their calling. They begin to exercise a gift that God has given them, and something rises up out of them, and you begin to see the image of God. So as she begins to sing, I want you to watch for the change in Emma as she begins to do what God created her to do. Watch this with me. Hello. Your name is? Um, I'm Emma Jones. How old are you? I'm 23. 23. And where are you from? I'm from Wigton in Cumbria. And why have you entered the show? I just um, want to just... Give it, give it a try and see if, if you like my voice. Are you nervous, Emma? All right, well, good luck, sweetheart. Thank you.
David. You should be confident, Emma. You came on and you're very shy and nervous at first, but you have a fantastic voice. Very few of us could ever sing like that. And you should come out and perform like a winner because that's what you are. Do you catch a glimpse of the goodness of God's creation in that song? Do you, do you see something change in her? Did you see the shock in her face right when she sang the first two words and then people began to clap? She's, she's not used to being recognized as someone who is gifted. She's not used to people recognizing the fingerprints of God in her. You see this transformation take place. What, what everyone might call broken, when... We didn't watch this part because of time, but she comes out just so into herself and barely making eye contact and hidden. So what we would call maybe broken or not particularly attractive suddenly blossoms and, and is recognized to be good. And people celebrate the goodness and she experiences this moment of joy, that transformation that takes place as she begins to sing and do that very thing which her creator created her to do. And as you know how the show works. Other guys continue to affirm it. They recognize it. And it's a, it's a momentary transformation as we begin to see the echoes of the Eden story come out of her. Shalom, doing that thing which she was created by God to do. But sadly for Emma, it's just a moment. It didn't catapult her to, to fortune and fame. She actually goes on to struggle with addiction and depression because she still labors under the effects of the fall. But it's a glimpse of what can be. And what Jesus would say to you or what Jesus would say to me this morning is, I want this for you. I want the goodness of my creation. I want the, the beauty of my design shining out of you. I, I don't just want it for a moment in time. I want it completely for you. I, I want you to know the joy of living in wholeness, the joy of living with purpose. But he go, it would go on to say, but for me to do that, for that to happen, I have to deal with sin and the curse that continues to weigh you down. I have to find a way to reverse it. So the question that you and I probably wrestle with at different moments is, can I ever be what I ought to be? Can I ever come to a place of wholeness where, where the beauty of God's creation is evident in me and it's flowing out of me? And the testimony of Scripture would be a resounding yes. Yes, it can. However, we can't remain as we are and just try harder to be gooder or look be gooder. All right, you need to pray for me again. Yeah, I have an English degree. That was effective. Um, <laughs> we can't just try harder to be good is what I was going for. See, Dan, English is hard, man. It's tough. It's tough. It requires a transformation. We have to be, in the words of Scripture, made new. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and that phrase means if anyone has surrendered their lives to follow Jesus, if anyone has chosen to live within his kingdom rather than trying to establish their own, New creation has come. God has done something. He has created something new within us in that moment when we surrender to him. And he describes what happens. He says, the old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry 
of reconciliation. See, back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, when the curse of sin attached itself like a parasite to God's good creation, God immediately responded by putting a plan into motion to make us new and to reverse the effects of the curse, to make us, to help us to do what we were powerless to do on our own. God was committed to make a way for his realm and our realm to connect once more, to reconcile us back to him. Genesis 3.15 says it this way, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you have led Adam and Eve astray, because you have led them into sin and compromised my good creation, you're cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God speaks in the words of a poem, and, and what he is saying in this imagery when he says he will crush your head is he will defeat you and he will undo the effects of the sin that you led Adam and Eve into. But he goes on to say in poetic language, but it will come at a cost. There is a price that will be paid. That's what it means when it says you will strike his heel. It will require, as we learn later in the Bible story, a sacrifice. God was going to send someone who would be able to reverse the curse and reconcile us back to God. So how did he do that? How did Jesus reconcile us back to God? The Bible word for that, we're doing lots of vocab work today, okay? You with me? If you're not, thank you. Thank you. You and me, we're doing vocab work. The rest of you can listen in. The Bible word for this work of reconciliation is to redeem. God had to redeem us. Now, when you think of redemption, what comes immediately to mind? Probably a little different for all of us. If you're a football player, a football fan, uh, you may think of this guy, and it pains me to put a 49er on the screen, but he's a great example. This is a young man named Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy was picked number 262 in the 2022 NFL draft. They titled him Mr. Irrelevant because the last pick in the draft is usually a throwaway pick, and so nobody ever does anything of any significance. However, Brock Purdy is about to be one of the two starting quarterbacks in the Super Bowl. He has shown people that he is better than they thought. Some of us would call that a redemption story. Redemption story is when you stick it to your critics. You show them how wrong they were and how right you are. But when we use the word that way, it sounds a little bit like revenge. But God wasn't sending Jesus on a revenge mission. God was sending Jesus on a rescue mission. So redemption in our context has to mean something a little bit different. I looked up the word. I'm going to read some definitions to you, and as I do, I just want you to think a little bit about how some of these might apply to you. Redeem means to buy back or repurchase, to get or to win back, to free from captivity by payment or ransom. And there's more. It means to free what from dis distresses or harms, to release from blame or debt, to release from the consequences of sin in our context, to change for the better, to remove the obligation of by means of a payment, or to exchange for something of value, to offset the bad effect of, or to make worthwhile again. This is what Jesus offers. This is the story of what can be. This is the third chapter of our four-chapter gospel. Creation, fall, but God doesn't leave us there. He leads us to redemption. Now, when we talk about redemption, there are two modern-day examples that come quickly to mind, ways we can redeem things. The first is to redeem a slave. 
I don't know if you know this, but slaves can and still are being purchased out of slavery all over the world today. Mike Mercer has an organization called Compassion First, and he raises money to buy women out of sexual slavery in Asia and then to help rehabilitate and heal them and then release them into a different vocation. There's, there's a country on the west coast of Africa that currently has a population where 10 to 20% of them are actively engaged right now in slavery. They are enslaved. We redeem slaves in the world today. Our super shoppers, I'm not sure if we've got any super shoppers among us, we redeem coupons. Any super shoppers? Any coupon lovers? Nope? Okay. You're going to say yes to anything today, and I just want to tell you, I really appreciate that. For those of you who don't know what a coupon is, because you're used to redeeming codes on your phone, there was a period of time back in the dark ages when you could get the Sunday morning printed newspaper, and it was full of coupons. And you could cut those coupons out, and you could redeem them for something. Now, on that coupon, because of state law, you had to assign a value to that coupon. So it would say something like 1 20th of a cent or 1 100th of a cent, which represented the value of the paper and the ink. But that's not what the coupon was really worth. How did you determine what a coupon was worth? Well, the value of the coupon was whatever the creator of that coupon placed upon it. That's what you were able to redeem the coupon for. 10%, 20%, 50%. This is what the creator of that coupon was willing to give up in order to facilitate that purchase. Which leads to the question, when it comes to our redemption, what value did God put on you? What was the creator willing to pay to purchase us back? John 3.16 says it beautifully, simply, and incredibly clearly. God loved the world, that's you, so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The word give means to give over or to deliver completely, to supply something that is necessary. So God, in order to buy you, in order to buy me back out of the slavery of sin, to redeem us from the effects of the fall and the curse of sin that we labored under, was able, was, excuse me, was willing to give the best that he had. If you ever struggle with a sense of self-worth, and I won't ask for a response on that, I think it would probably be at least a solid 95%. If you always, if you ever wish that you were something more than you are, not feeling good enough, valuable enough, or lovable enough, can you just take a moment and realize that the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one that spoke existence into being, the one that the, the, the psalmist says threw the stars into the sky, he sees you as the most valuable thing he could ever purchase. And the reason we know that is because he paid the ultimate price and gave the best that he ever, that he, that he ever had, his own son, in order to purchase you back. You are deeply and profoundly loved by the God of the universe. Your Redeemer says that you are worth dying for. So if you came this morning and you don't feel very worthy and you don't feel like you're worth much, I just want you to hear, if you hear nothing else this morning, that you are priceless. You are absolutely priceless. You're worth the very best that he has to offer. So what does the Bible teach us about redemption? How did, how did God deal with the curse of sin? I told you we're having a vocab day. Here's your next vocab. Substitutional atonement. Yeah, drop that into conversation at lunch at work tomorrow. They're going to look at you like, what are you talking about? It's not as complicated as it sounds. Substitutionary atonement means that Christ died in our sin, for our sins in our place. 
he died as a substitute. That's the first word. Atonement means he did it in order to make us at one or reconciled to God. So Christ died for our sins on our behalf in order to reconcile us or make us at one with God. See, in the Old Testament, in order to deal with Israel's sin, because God told Israel the way they were to live as his people, and they couldn't do it. But he didn't want them to have to labor under the penalty of their sins over and over and over. So he, he instituted a sacrificial system to deal with their sin. And so they could take an unblemished lamb, and that unblemished lamb would bear the sins of the people and die in their place. The lamb would receive the judgment for sins, and the people would receive forgiveness. He was their substitute. Their sins were atoned for. They were reconciled back to God by virtue of the sacrificial lamb. Well, John the Baptist is hanging out with a bunch of guys one day, and he sees Jesus walking down the road, and he stops what he's doing, and he says, Behold, which is Bible for look, and he says, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, our substitute. Jesus was what Adam and Israel would not, were not and could not be. He was obedient. He was faithful. He was righteous. He kept every one of God's commands and was without sin. And at the cross, he offered his perfect, his sinless life as a sacrifice on our behalf. He had no sins that demanded judgment. But he voluntarily went to the cross in order to bear the judgment that we deserved because we do have sins. This is what Isaiah was meant when he said, when Jesus went to the cross, it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He's talking about you and me. He says, we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, maybe a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was, he was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. We've all strayed away. We've all left God's path to follow our own. We've all stepped out of his kingdom and tried to determine our own. But rather than make us pay the penalty for that sin, God laid on Jesus the sins of all of us. But there was more that was happening in substitutionary atonement, last time I'm going to use that word, I promise, than simply a pardon. It was more than a pardon. It was a pardon and an exchange where Christ was taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. <clears throat> Excuse me. He cleanses our sin, he, he wipes the record of wrong, and he gives us then a new heart. There is, a, there is both a removal of sin, but an impartation. In the words of Jeremiah, it says, we receive a new heart. We receive a new mind, a new will, and then in the Holy Spirit, a new power to live as his children. This is what Jesus provided at the cross. This is what can be. This is what is now possible. And Paul, for once, explains it fairly simply. If you ever read some of Paul's writings and you're like, he's super complicated and I don't understand him, you're in good company. One of my favorite verses is when Peter writes, Paul's a little hard to understand. So when one of the disciples of Jesus says, Paul's kind of complicated, I feel better about me. Here's what Paul says. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. Now, now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, 
we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. There's a lot going on in that passage, so let me just break it down for you kind of bit by bit. Here's the first thing Paul says. When you and I were utterly helpless, when we were, when we were laboring under the effects of the fall, the effects of the sin, and we were far from God, there was nothing that we could do. We were broken by the fall and unable to make our way back to him. We were powerless in our brokenness. There was no way for us to ever reach God again. We had been separated from him at the garden. But when he saw us in that condition, Christ came and died. Last week we said that God's realm and man's realm were separated by sin. And because we could no longer enter his, God decided in Jesus to enter ours. God's love pursues us, chases us down, finds us where we are. And because we no longer had access to the tree of life and were going to die, he died for us. We could do nothing. We could do nothing. And God could have left us in our brokenness and said, well, you're sinful and you messed up. And, but he pursued. The love of God is so active and engaging It doesn't wait for us to get it right. It comes to us when we are most in need, and we are most in need when we are helpless. If there somehow has landed in your mind that you need to clean your life up, get your stuff together, and then come to Jesus, you're missing the point. Jesus comes to us when we can't get our lives together and when we are perpetually messing up. When we were helpless, the love of God pursued us, and Christ came and he died to provide a new life that only he could make possible to buy us out of slavery. And then he says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die. God didn't do this out of a sense of guilt. He didn't do this because he had a cosmic plan and he was super frustrated with us that we had messed it up, but he was going to find a way to see his thing through anyway. He didn't do it out of a sense of duty. He pursued you and me in our brokenness because of his great love. That's what love does. Love pursues you. And if you've ever wondered how God feels about you, he says it again here. In your brokenness, in your helplessness, in your yuck, not in your cleaned up shiny life, in the the parts of your life that nobody sees and you hope they never find out about. God's love pursues you there in the depths of your brokenness, in the stuff that you, you try so desperately to hide, God sees. And it doesn't repel him, it compels him. And he reaches to you in love to make it better to help you become what you can't become on your own, what is only possible through his death and his resurrection. It's kind of cool, guys. See, some, sometimes I've, I've found that, that we remember parts of Scripture. Like, we, we focus on the forgiveness because we need it. Like, yep, God, God forgave me because that's his job. And, and we forget the part that says that you are deeply and profoundly loved that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God takes great delight in you when he watches, when he looks at his creation. Scripture says that he rejoices over you in song. Now, we don't do that much anymore. I don't walk into the living room and just rejoice over my wife in song. But there is such delight in the heart of God. Have you ever been so happy you just start singing you don't care what, what people think? And, and some people are always like, oh, Lord, no, not again. God looks at you, and there is so much delight in his heart, he breaks into song because he cannot contain the joy that he has in you. 
we have to remember not just the forgiveness for which we are grateful, but the love that offers it. Because that says something to us about our value in a world that assigns value in really twisted ways. This is where we find value. The God of heaven and earth looks at you and says, you are just the way I want you to be. I love you as you are. It's okay that you're not all cleaned up, and it's okay that you're not all shiny. I'm coming for you with the best I have to offer. And after he showed his great love by sending Christ to die, it says you, by virtue of that, when you place your trust in Christ, we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ. What does that mean? We touched on this in our Galatians series, if you were there. It means that we have been justified. And being justified means it's just as if you had never sinned. That God looks at you and he doesn't see the record. He looks at me and he doesn't see my my record of screw-ups from today back until consciousness. He looks at me as if I had never sinned. He doesn't see my my dirt and my, I don't know how he does it. I can't do it. I got to tell you, I look at you, I see your sin. I do. I see mine. I, I can't just forget about it. But God, again, in, in kind of the, the poetic imagery of Scripture, he says he takes our sin and he throws it as far as the east is from the west. It says he drops it in the sea of forgetfulness and he remembers it no more. God somehow has the ability to meet us where we really are and also receive us as if we were as, as righteous as his son, Jesus. This is what it means when it says we have been clothed in robes of righteousness. God chooses to look at you and me and see the perfection of his son. Even as he meets us in our weakness, only God could do both at the same time. When Jesus died on the cross for us, his, his, sent, his sacrifice paid the penalty for our sin and in God's eyes returned us to what ought to be. And because we are returned to what ought to be, our friendship with God was restored. Do you remember Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day? They hung out together. And then when they sinned, they felt separated and they went and hid. So when God came looking for them, he found them hiding because they were afraid. But God says, here's how I'm going to relate to you from this point on. Friend to friend. Get your head around that a little bit. That the God of the heavens and earth looks at you and says, hey, want to be friends? There isn't this, it's just, I can't get my head around it. I want to be your friend. You want to be my, I want to be your friend. However, we have to choose to repent. We have to choose to surrender control to God. We have to choose to apprentice ourselves to the teachings of Jesus. We have to put the fruit back on the tree. But how does this change happen? Can I have five more minutes? Okay, thank you. I was going to take it anyway, but yeah. Now, now you feel empowered. How does this happen? Paul explains it. Colossians 2, when you came to Christ, he said, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God. Your faith was in him who raised Christ from the dead. What he's saying there, by the way, is what Christ, what God did for Jesus, raising him from the dead, he will do for you. Not at some point in the future, but now in the present, but we'll get to that. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of your sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And he makes this statement now. 
He says, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He's talking about unclean spirits. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about your adversary, the one who is working to resist what God wants to do in you and through you. He disarmed him, he says, and he shamed them publicly by his victory over them at the cross. So Paul says we've been circumcised. What's he talking about? Circumcision was an Old Testament sign. It was a covenant act that showed that Israelites belonged to God, that they were his people. But circumcision didn't make people new. And we needed to be made new. So God instituted a new covenant. We celebrated it this morning at communion. And so Paul says that when we repent, when we accept Jesus as Lord, another circumcision takes place that he calls a a spiritual circumcision. And he says our sinful nature, the result of the fall, the thing that pulls us to sin, that pulls us to bondage, pulls us to slavery, is cut away. Somebody, God takes a scalpel and he just, he cuts that sucker away. And the old me, the one who was guilty, the one who was sinful, has died. Christ's death on the cross is accepted by God as my own, so I am free from judgment. Have you ever seen them put a dead person in the electric chair? No. Why? Because you don't execute judgment on people who are dead. And what Paul is saying here and elsewhere in Scripture is that when you surrendered your life to Christ, then Christ's death on the cross was accepted as your own. This is why you are now free from judgment and condemnation. This is why you don't have to fear getting hammered by the angry right hand of God. You are seen as dead spiritually with Christ. Your old nature has been cut away. It's been buried in the grave. But Jesus didn't stay on the cross or in the tomb. He rose again. And Jesus, for you, does not leave you simply with your old cut away. He raises you to new life, a new spirit, that new mind that we talked about. He says, God made you alive with Christ as he forgave all of your sins. He created you new. You are not, once you surrender your life to Christ, who you once were. You may have the same temptations. You may be pulled in the same direction, but you are no longer enslaved by them. You can choose to follow Jesus. You can choose to walk in freedom. This is the story of the chapter 3. Redemption, what can be. He took our death upon himself and he gave us new life. When Jesus rose from the grave, we rose with him. And then he goes on and he says, he canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. What does that mean? Well, we've already established that Jesus took our sin upon himself. And once he paid the penalty, nailed to the cross, there was nothing left to pay. That's how he canceled the record. It was not that we would never do wrong. It was that there was no longer any penalty for wrongdoing because Jesus canceled it. Everything John has ever done, everything Wendy has ever done, everything you have ever done, before you even did it, Jesus took it to the cross and he nailed it there. And across the top, it says now paid in full. And he chooses to remember our sin no longer. And in doing that, in taking our sin to the cross in our place, it says he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and he shamed them publicly. What does that mean? It means Jesus on the cross, as he breathed breathed his last, 
was making a statement to hell that said, sucker, you blew it. Sucker, you lost. He disarmed and he embarrassed them. He said, what you began in the garden, I just undid. You threw your worst at me, thinking that you were sacrificing, killing the king of kings. I laid my life down intentionally to begin to recreate what you had polluted. You have no weapon left to use against them. You're powerless. Consider the enemies that you, or the, excuse me, the weapons that your enemy employs. I'm going to make them feel guilty. They don't have any. I just took their sin to the cross. I'm going to make them feel ashamed. You can't. It's as if they had never sinned. I'm going to tell them that you are angry and that you are far from God. You know what? He says we're friends now. I've redeemed them. I've bought them back. They are forgiven. They are justified. Made righteous. When I look at them, they look like me because I have given them my spirit and made them new. And I have now empowered them in that condition to live out their Genesis calling. The cross was Christ's ultimate victory and Satan's ultimate defeat. It left him with no arrows left in his quiver. The only thing he has now is fear and disinformation. But when we begin to understand what Christ has done and what it means for us in the here and now, when we spend time in his word, when we're doing our life 260, when we're understanding what it means to be born again and made new, then when the enemy comes in against us, we can say, sorry, sucker, I read the book. You've lost. You've lost. I am loved by God. Say that. I am loved by God. Now I want you to keep saying it this week until you believe it. You are deeply, profoundly, and overwhelmingly loved by God, as you are right now. That's the third chapter. We can be made new because of the cross. The transformation that we need comes through the cross. It transforms us, Scripture says, because it transfers us from death to life, from bondage to freedom. You were once slaves, now you've been set free. From shame to honor. We were ashamed and in our sin, and now we are children of the Most High God. From mourning to dancing, that's one of the promises of Scripture. I will turn your mourning, your sorrow into dancing, unrestrained joy. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, it says, to the kingdom of light. From fear to faith, from ashes to beauty, Isaiah 61, and from defeat to victory. This, this church is the story of redemption. This is the picture of what can be. We can be forgiven. We can be saved from the effects of the fall. We can now do and be what we were originally designed to do and originally designed to be. We can reflect the image of God into this world because he has made us new. His spirit is within us and his spirit moves through us. We can be in Christ what we never were able to be on our own. This is what God intends for you. This is what God intends for me. I don't know what you came expecting this morning and I don't know what you needed to hear. I'm simply doing my best today to communicate what I feel like Jesus is talking to me about. But I think that there are areas of breakthrough that are available this morning for people who do not have a sense of self-worth. You do not find yourself valuable. You do not think that there is anything redemptive in you. I think there is breakthrough available this morning for people who feel that God is far from them. And I think the Holy Spirit just wants to say, I am so close right now. I am so close right now. 
And I think that there is freedom for people who have been walking in fear. And Jesus wants to allow you to live in victory and in liberty. We've been talking about his love. Scripture says that God's love casts out fear. Fear and the love of God cannot coexist. See, fear has to do with punishment. But we've already been forgiven. Will you bow your heads with me for just a minute? Close your eyes. I just want to afford a moment of privacy. Everything I'm talking about this morning begins with a decision to put our trust in God. To say, I am choosing in this moment to follow you, to live for you, rather than pursue my own agenda. I'm going to offer my sinful self to you in faith, trusting that you'll receive me and you will forgive me. And then I'm going to follow your teachings and live under your Lordship. If you're here this morning and you've never said that, you've never made that commitment, never made that decision, but this morning you feel like, I hear God calling me and I want to say yes to Him. I'd like to pray for you. And if wherever you are in the room, if you would just raise your hand high enough for me to see so I can agree with you. I see you. Thank you. I see you. Thank you. I see you in the center. Yeah, I see you. Anybody else? I see you. Thank you. We're going to pray this prayer together. I see you. Thank you. I'm going to give the words, but you're going to supply the heart. So I want you, not just those who have raised your hand, all of us together in one voice, to repeat after me as we talk to Jesus. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins because you love me. I believe three days later you rose to new life. I offer you myself in my sin and in my brokenness, trusting that you will bring me new life. Forgive me like you promised. Heal me like you promised. Teach me how to follow you. And I will follow. In Jesus' name. Amen. You keep your head bowed for just a moment. I want to just a second question. If you're here this morning and you just, you, I don't know how to say it other than you feel like you've been walking through the storm. Like you're trying to follow Jesus. You're trying to, you're trying to live into this new creation power. You just, you just feel like you keep getting hammered. The rain's coming. The wind's blowing sideways. And you know God is doing something good in you, but you just feel that work being resisted. Would you lift your hand? Yeah, man, a lot of us in that place. A lot of us in that place. Here's what we're going to do this morning. As we close, we're going to begin to lift a declaration of faith. I want you to stand to your feet with me. See, Scripture says in Hebrews 13:8 that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means what He provided so long ago is present for us today. The victory that He provided is available to us today. The power that He demonstrated so long ago is available to us today today. He canceled our record of wrongs, he disarmed our enemy, and he shamed him publicly. Sometimes we need to hold that truth and declare that truth. 